On this edition of Civic, a return to Alcatraz as tourism returns to the Bay Area, and the lesser-known story of a Native American occupation 50 years ago takes center stage. Alcatraz was the spark that lit the fire of indigenous resistance. And so I do hope that people learn more about that history and learn about how rich it is when I provide land acknowledgements throughout the Ohlone Bay, throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. I include in those land acknowledgements the history of Alcatraz and not only the 50 years of resistance with Alcatraz, but the 50 years of the founding of the Black Panther Party. There are so many resistance movements and solidarity movements that were sparked from that time. I'm Mel Baker, filling in for Laura Wenis. This is Civic. I recently took a ferry to Alcatraz, boarding on the early morning boat with the island staff. It was a familiar routine. I'd worked on the rock for a little over a year back in 2017 between journalism jobs. This time, I was coming back with my reporter hat on to see how the island had fared during the lockdown, learn about the resumption of tourism, and most importantly, discover more about the 50th anniversary of the 19-month-long Native American occupation of the island that had galvanized the indigenous rights movement. As we walked onto the dock, I spoke with my friend and fellow reporter Peter Finch, who had also worked on Alcatraz about the occupation anniversary and how people might view the island differently in coming years. Yeah, I don't know if you remember Captain yeah. Salty Beard here. It's hard yeah. to see I know, yeah. You. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And my coworker Jessica. Hi. Yeah. San Francisco Public Press. She's doing a big photo essay. We're going to focus on the uh, occupation. Super. Yeah. Do a big That's story fantastic. about the end of the 50th anniversary period. So. Yeah. So yeah, Steve's our our guide today. He says he can give us about an hour and a half, and Sweet. then he, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I probably will see you up there. I'm, I'm opening the island right now. Oh, okay. We'll let I'm you get to it. Closing it. it but, yeah. <laughs> it's great so, to see you. So Peter, it's. The island's changed. I mean, we come back and I'm noticing all of the uh, occupation uh, uh, patient signage that was put up by the original occupiers has been restored. Political messaging, I think they called it, as opposed to graffiti. That was the official. Yeah, it's been redone. It says Indians welcome Indian land. The funny thing was, I remember I had a visitor, a woman from India, who came up to me one time and said, why does it say Indians welcome out there? And I had to explain that it was Native Americans and about the whole occupation and stuff like that. But yeah, that it, it's definitely a fresh coat of paint. And I have mixed feelings. I mean, it looks good. Before though, it was so weathered, it kind of looked like it was from 69, you know. And I, I know they've got to freshen it up just because this will get weathered too after a while. But. Uh, uh, yeah, it looks pretty spiffy. It kind of jumps out at you now, as opposed to being super faded. I, my own take on it is, I think the occupation, especially in this time period when we're talking about social justice again in so many ways, I think the occupation is over time going to become more and more important. I think potentially in the coming decades, this is going to be a f- more important part of the history of Alcatraz than just all of the Al Capone stuff and the escape stuff. I think people are going to find more and more interest in that period because really it was such a historic pivot 
and so important for Native American activism. Well, and that's why it's important that you're interviewing people who witnessed it because, you know, as we saw with the cell house, just uh, I think all the former prisoners or most of them have, well, except for Bill Baker, most of them have passed away now and the guards, we've lost them. Uh, and that'll start to happen with people who were here for the, for the occupation. Uh, and it's important to get their stories before they're gone. I mean, you know, you can continue to hand the stories down and tell them, but um, y yeah, you wanna get that social history while you can. I, yeah, I, I don't know. That's an interesting theory. You may be right. We'll see as time moves on. It, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely part of the story of Alcatraz, that's for sure. I don't know if it'll ever surpass the cell house, though, because you, you've seen it, you know, when we worked here. Just uh, people would come to the island and, and, you know, well, the movies that have been made and just the whole, uh, you know, the whole mystique of the cell house, I think, kind of captured people's fancy but yeah we'll see as time goes by maybe the occupation will will get up there in the same you know be elevated to the same status that would be interesting i don't know if there are many questions that remain from the occupation you know it, uh, but i i mean i see what you're saying in terms of as as the issues surrounding the treatment of indigenous peoples is well but it's still this is still a living place for native activism it is you know this is there's still well, yeah. seminars and things that still come here to talk about the importance of the occupation the thanksgiving events that occur here where uh, you know this is a reminder about native uh, activism it's still it is still a place that is important to Native Americans and indigenous activists around the world. So That's that true. part is not fading yeah. and that part will continue to grow. Yeah. And I, yes, the majority of tourists are gonna to come here to hear about Al Capone and hear about the escapees and to see what they've seen in the movies. That's no question. But it's important historic, it's importance historically, it's importance as a civil rights sort of place, I think that the occupation will just continue to grow. You can hear Peter's great reporting about the reopening of the island and more stories about Alcatraz on his podcast, The Finch Files. I can speculate all day about the legacy of the occupation with a fellow Alcatrazophile and reporter like Peter, but to get some real answers, I need to speak to someone who is steeped in both the legacy of that occupation and who is grappling with the reality of the challenges faced by Native people today. Morning Star Galley. I'm Ajumawi Band of Pitt River, and I'm the California Tribal and Community Liaison for the International Indian Treaty Council. So everyone's familiar with Alcatraz being this history, this infamous federal prison. So Al Capone, uh, the Birdman, all the, fam the famous escapees, et cetera. And that's kind of what it's infamous for. But going back into the 18th century, when Alcatraz was a Civil War era fortress, it was being used in that period to hold Native American people who refused to uh, do what the government wanted them to do, or they were just being held just because they were potentially uh, a threat to the California government at the time. So a lot of your work in the has focused on some of the disparities in incarceration around Native uh, people today. 
So when we talk about Alcatraz, it all links back together from that ancient, that, uh, that 19th century history right through to, to today. And then the occupation is kind of this interesting through line. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's all interconnected. And, you know, even the work that's being done today in terms of the advocacy is still pushing for the visibility of that history to be brought forward. That, um, you know, there's a little bit that is mentioned and discussed in terms of our Hopi relatives and how they were imprisoned on Alcatraz Island for refusing to send their children to boarding school um, back in the in the late 1800s. But it still hits too close to home to talk about the history of California Indian leaders that were being removed from Round Valley Reservation when our tribal peoples were force marched there and how California Indian leaders were sent to Alcatraz Island and imprisoned there on the island and held there during that Civil War era. And so I think that, you know, today part of uh, the advocacy as a California Native woman, as someone who every day fights for visibility um, and fights against erasure, it is important for us to talk about that history and talk about how that is connected in terms of how Alcatraz still um, remains as not only a symbol of indigenous resistance, but the close connections of the occupation that took place from 1969 to 1971, and why it was that that island is so symbolic 50 years ago, and why it still is today. Can we talk a little bit about some of the research you have done about incarceration in Native peoples and how there's this incredible disparity in the ratio of incarcerated persons versus population and and some of the legal issues between uh, tribal authority versus uh, federal authority and, and how all of that just leads to these incredible uh, inequalities in the in the criminal justice system. Absolutely. We know that, uh, you know, in general, in generalized terms, that this system is not designed for us, that the system is not designed for us as as Native peoples, that it's very much working against us. And we see that today within paternalistic federal Indian law. What we also see is that there's an 84% recidivism rate for Native peoples. And so when I started doing this research, you know, this is something that is very personal to me. It was during that occupation time of 1969 to 1971, that my father was incarcerated at San Quentin State Penitentiary. He was incarcerated for seven years um, due to his involvement with the Third World Liberation Front and the fight for ethnic studies at San Francisco State University at San Mateo College at the time. And so he was released um, with the help of a really amazing person named Wilma Mankiller at the time in the late 1970s, who was working with uh, tribal elders from my tribe, from the Pitt River region, that she was very active within the community. And her legacy still very much continues on in, in terms of that work that, that she did. And so 
in the late 1970s is when I was born at the Aim for Freedom Survival School, the Oakland Aim House in Oakland, California. And so I really spent the early part of my life where my father was able to walk out of prison, out of state prison, and walk back in. And he was able to help his his relatives um, and, you know, his tribal community that, that he had spent um, in San Quentin, where they were organizing the American Indian movement behind the prison walls at the time, where they were organizing the outside community to come in and, and visit. Um, and so, you know, acknowledging those interactions and also acknowledging that, you know, for many intertribal peoples at the time, um, and this is the way it still is, that, you know, that may be their first experiences in terms of being introduced to our sacred ceremonies and to have that opportunity to, um, you know, be away from the challenges of, of this world and have, have that access to um, those ceremonial tools and healing practices. And so I spent that time with my father helping to gather, you know, cedar and sage and willow and, and rocks for the sweat lodges um, within the prisons. And in 1995, he was hired on as the first full-time spiritual advisor for the state of California for the Department of Corrections. Unfortunately, um, this was work that, you know, he, uh, you know, the health conditions that he suffered while he was incarcerated. He had spent a lot of time in the hole. He had spent a lot of time in solitary confinement he developed hepatitis C. And so from that, he developed um, complications with with his liver and it ended up taking his life. Um, While I was attending Mills College in Oakland, I was going into the women's prisons. I was going into Federal Correctional Institution, which is in Dublin, California, into both the camp and um, the maximum security prisons. And so, you know, recognizing that I was in a private institution on a campus where no one looked like me and on the weekends walking into an institution where everyone, it's a room full of native women where everyone looks like me. Um, And so just knowing at the time that I needed to do what it was that I could to help to advocate for our incarcerated tribal populations and also recognizing the connection of our, our unique history within California, that it began with missionization. It began with the rancherias and the reservations of us being forced marched and of us being incarcerated on our tribal lands and how that still continues today in terms of the way that our peoples are disproportionately impacted within um, the, the, you know, the, the system, um, you know, we say from, from boarding school to, you know, the boarding school to prison pipeline, but it is so much more than that. Um, I say that 100% of our Native youth are considered system impacted due to the history and the generations of, of boarding school, what so many youth still experience within uh, the foster care system, um, the way that ICWA is, you know, the spirit of ICWA is supposed to apply, but it does not apply within so many cases and there's so many non-native children that are still being um, sent to non-native foster homes and and adopted out. I'm speaking with Morningstar Gali with the Ajamawi Band of the Pitt River Tribe. She is the California Tribal and Community Liaison for the International Indian Treaty Council. 
to maintain space for tradition on native land, you're you're dealing with a structure in which the reservations have so little autonomy and so little resources. That's got to be the other challenge on the other end. You're trying to uh, build culture and community in hostile institutions on the outside that have incarcerated people or that uh, underplay uh, non-Christian, Judeo-Christian religions. But then on the other hand, even within native land that's technically sovereign, you don't have the resources. So that's got to be just this ongoing and frankly enraging challenge that even this many years after something like an Alcatraz occupation, you're still fighting for some just basic efforts to make your community uh, have the resources it needs to thrive. Yeah, the basic resources, you know, the access to um, clean water, the access to be able to have, you know, conditions such as, you know, heating and electricity within homes. I think that there's a lot of, you know, misconceptions that with California tribes, especially because there are a handful of tribes that have, you know, been able to, you know, to, to profit um financially, you know, that's not the majority of the tribes. There are 109 tribes within California that have been afforded federal recognition, but there are over 55 tribes throughout California that are considered NFR non-federally recognized. And so we have tribes that have been terminated. We have disenfranchised and disenrolled tribal peoples. We have um, state recognized tribes and we have tribes that have been exterminated altogether, tribal peoples. And so it really is heartbreaking. I worked for my tribe, for uh, Pitt River Tribe for four and a half years as the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and to witness our, our relatives cycle in and out. And, you know, that um, those resources are not available, you know, and so they would um, be released from from jail or, you know, be on parole or probation. And, you know, they weren't able to have access to jobs, have access to resources, have access to housing. And so that is why we have such high recidivism rates. That is why, you know, we don't have that, you know, that that connection in terms of having those culturally relevant programs available, that it's it's just not not there. And even within the school system, um, I have four children ages seven to 17. And so just, you know, consistently fighting the school system and the school board in terms of what they were teaching our children, what they were teaching our youth, um, you know, that was a full-time job within itself and just the racism that my children experienced within the schools. Um, and so, you know, we still very much see that today that, you know, people have this idea that Northern California is is extremely liberal and just, you know, politically, you know, extremely um, leftist. And that's not the reality within, you know, the northeastern regions of Shasta, Siskiyou, Modoc, and, and Lassen counties of where my tribe is located. And so it's still extremely, um, you know, raci racialized that it's on, you know. So when I would take my daughter uh, to daycare, right next door to the daycare, there were homes with Confederate flags on the door that still very much exist today. Um, and we've seen that, especially, you know, we're just barely out of a post-Trump era, but we see the effects in terms of 
the you know the the militia um and what you know all of that that represents settler colonialism back home on our tribal lands and so it's still an ongoing uh battle very much and it and it does um still very much exist within the public school system and what about the because the tribes do tribes have the representation in local government or are if the tribe is sovereign on its own it has no representation within the state structure how how does it work for your particular tribe so for my particular tribe it's pit river tribe and we our our makeup is that we are 11 autonomous bands and so we have 11 council representatives and 11 alternates. We have 11 cultural committee representatives and then 11 alternates. And so we are essentially a tribal government of 44 plus representatives that are all culturally autonomous making those decisions. So we do not have a say or any visibility within any of, you know, the, the state um any of the structures in, in terms of Shasta County, where we are in within Bernie, California, is unincorporated. Um, it's still very, very rural. And so, um, and, and the representation um, there is extremely, um, you know, it's 80% white and it's, it's still very much um, not reflective of, of our tribe or tribal governance structure. And so in terms of any sort of, um, you know, political seats, we, we do not hold any within the area because for the most part, our um, values um, do, do not align with the majority there. So in effect, you have some sovereignty over your own cultural control and over the land you're on, but in effect, also your dis- you, you have no say over the money that coming from the state, all of the, all of the infrastructure that, that comes from local governance. And you're literally locked out in a territory governed by possibly a smaller population than, than you are controlling it. It's literally, literally the definition of colonialism. It is. It's yes. re recolonization happening um, in this moment. And we have 3.5 million acres um, that encompass the four county area. But again, you know, with our, um, you know, there's a number of agencies that we're in consultation with the U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management. There's three Forest Service. And again, consultation with tribes, um, federally recognized tribes is very much, you know, my experience was that it was just checking the box um, and and moving on. And so that's why I'm such a, a big advocate um, for our non-federally recognized tribal members, you know, in, in stating that, you know, this is a divide and conquer tactic, that this is a tool of colonization that has been used against us in terms of the federal government deciding who is and who is not deemed a Native American, based, you know, based on blood quantum and based on what paper documentation that you can show. And so, you know, the when the the U.S. Calvary was coming after us, when there was two million dollars in bounties being placed on our heads as the state of California was being founded, um, you know, 
what I say is that they weren't asking for our, our tribal IDs back then. They weren't, you know, trying to determine whether or not we were considered recognized Indians at that time, that they were out to, to hunt and exterminate all of us. Having just been in Yosemite and you talk about the Elenichi that were in Yosemite and the slaughter of some of their tribe and then the tribes that were allowed to come back were basically turned into servants for the tourists. And then they got to a point where, well, they really didn't want them doing that anymore either. And so then they forced them out into the Central Valley. So this complete process of colonizing them. And then even that was too much. And let's get them out of our, our valley. Sure. Um, Organization and then erasure. We'll name our hotel after the tribe. We'll name our restaurants and a couple of, you know, the areas will, you know, have a, have a mock village area to make it, you know, look nice. And, you know, that somehow there's some sort of respect being paid within that, but it's very much the erasure um, of the peoples and, and their existence there that has, has existed since time immemorial that we have 98% of our California tribal populations that were exterminated. And so even that, two percent that existed of our of our ancestors you know even that was too much for them let's tie that back into alcatraz um as somebody who worked on the island for a little over a year i've always been curious uh do you think alcatraz has preserved uh, artifacts from the occupation some of the graffiti there are displays on the island uh there are occasional larger exhibits there are members of the occupation and related uh, scholars and people that have things to say that are of interest that do come back repeatedly. The, the Park Service does do a fair amount to talk about the occupation. Do you think they're doing, as someone who is very much, uh, has goes to the island, we'll talk about that. Do you think that uh, the Park Service is doing right by the occupation at this point? Does more need to be done to to honor that history? And that legacy? I think there's always more that can be done. I definitely, you know, see what progress has been made within the last decade um, from the 40th to, to the 50th anniversary. And I think that even within the last 20 years, like, you know, there's, there's a great deal that has been done in, in recognizing the legacy and, and honoring that history. Um, but even, this past year, we, because of COVID, you know, we agreed to change the date of the annual sunrise gathering to uh, the day um, before um, our annual, what would be our annual um, Thanksgiving sunrise gathering on, on the island. And so, you know, due to COVID, due, due to knowing that um, you know, it was, it was a, a challenging, it was challenging altogether in terms of just being able to, to hold the gathering with less than a hundred peoples on the island. Um, we made those special accommodations and after we made those accommodations, then we received a notice from National Park Service that stated that, um, from now on, they would like us to change it and not hold it on Thanksgiving day. And so my response to that was just like, well, it's, pretty evident that there still is not an understanding. There's not an understanding of 
the solidarity and resistance of what the gathering represents and honoring the Alcatraz occupation. Um, if there was, they, you know, they wouldn't be making that ask. And so we are communicating with them. You know, we are, um, you know, explaining why it's not, um, you know, why it does not work for our community to, to consistently hold it the day before that we were making a one-time exception. Um, but I think that just goes to show that, you know, there are decisions that are, are made, um, within national park service at a higher up level that just don't understand still the, you know, the history, um, and significance, um, with not only the occupation, but, but the honoring of it. Which is an odd request <laughs> in that Thanksgiving, the island is closed to tourists. Yes. So it's not costing the Park Service its concessionaire or the Conservancy money. Uh, you would think that they would want the occupation to take this, uh, the, this, this honoring, this ceremony to take place on a day when they're not losing tourist money anyway, because the island would be closed. <laughs> Sure. And that it's existed for over 40 years. Exactly. And, and it's so. part of part of a series of, of events that occur around the United States on Thanksgiving. It, it just seems kind of an odd. It is. It is an odd request. So hopefully, you know, there are some really great people that do work within National Park Service. There is a new National Tribal Liaison, Dorothy Firecloud. And so I am hopeful about that. Um you know, and just really, you know, I, I think that it's an ongoing conversation and, and at times it does feel like an ongoing battle in terms of having to continue to explain ourselves um, and why it is necessary to, to, to hold the event on actual Thanksgiving morning. A quick aside, since our interview, Morningstar has informed me that the National Park Service has agreed to holding the sunrise ceremony at the usual time and place on Thanksgiving. I have always thought as uh, somebody that was on Alcatraz that in coming years, the occupation will be something that will be a bigger draw of more interest, of more historic importance than all of the Al Capone stuff uh, that future generations will find that history more interesting more compelling, more powerful. Looking back on the occupation, your father's legacy, the, the generation before you's legacy up to the present moment, what would you say about that through line from the, from the occupation that we're honoring now with the 50th anniversary? Yeah, I hope that they do find it more interesting. Um, I definitely, you know, understand. I, I have, I bring my four children there every year, just as I was brought as a young child. And, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the history of Alcatraz. And it's, it's kind of funny, my youngest is the one that's really into it. My seven-year-old, she's, you know, she says that Alcatraz and, and Hawaii are her two favorite places to travel to. Um, but she does also know the history of her grandparents um, that took part in the occupation of the island and understanding even that as the occupation was taking place that um, within um, Elam Modan, the, the battle for Rattlesnake Island up in Clear Lake, California, that's a sacred place um, that 
the tribe is still fighting to protect and it's a documented 14,000 year old village site. And so as, as Alcatraz was taking place, um, Elam occupation was taking place, Pitt River land claims was taking place. Um, there were so many at the time. And so as Dr. Lynetta Warjack says, you know, Alcatraz um, it lit the fire. Alcatraz um, was the spark that lit the fire of indigenous resistance. And so I do hope that people, you know, learn more about that history and learn about how rich it is when I provide land acknowledgments throughout the, the Ohlone Bay throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, I include in those land acknowledgments the history of Alcatraz and not only the 50 years of resistance with Alcatraz, but the 50 years of the founding of the Black Panther Party. There are so many um, resistance movements and solidarity movements that were sparked from that time of Third World Liberation Front, um, of fighting for the, the fight for ethnic studies, which still very much continues today. Um, and so all of that is just so, you know, so important to be able to learn and to be able to share. And so um, even in the way that I received my name, um, Morning Star is, is through a sunrise ceremony when I was born. And I was born at home at the Aim for Freedom Survival School at a time that Alameda County had the second highest infant mortality rate in the nation at a time that Native women were going into Indian health service clinics and coming out sterilized. Um, and so there is a whole, you know, legacy that that continues on. And, you know, there's so many people that I meet that, um, you know, it's just so, so meaningful to them to be able to attend and bring their children and to be able to counter, um, you know, this education that they're still being taught within public schools. Um, and to be able to gather together in, in solidarity, in resistance, to be able to offer those prayers and watch the sunrise all together on the island. Um, I think that it will, you know, be much more scaled back this year um, due, due to COVID regulations, but it still is, you know, very beautiful to participate in and be a part of. Well, Morningstar, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That was Morningstar Gali with the Ajumawi Band of the Pitt River Tribe. She is the California Tribal and Community Liaison for the International Indian Treaty Council. I'm Mel Baker, filling in for Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic. Before I let you go today, at the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thank you.